Welcome to another class in the bunker. Uh, thanks for joining us on this and uh, again thank you always for hitting like and telling us where you're from and uh, I've even noticed a number of you are, are sharing this class and thank you that really just has a chance to spread it out a little bit so hit share as well while you're on it okay okay um, want to do something just a little bit different uh, this evening um, it, we have been working our way slowly through the Old Testament and trying to take a look at the things that are there doctrinally that we can pull out and are, and are relevant. Uh, I'm going to take just a little bit of a break on that today because I, wanna, I don't want to discuss uh, an issue that seems to keep coming up over and over. And we've talked about it a little bit another time, but I want to expand on it and utilize a class that I taught recently at BYU Education Week uh, that kind of uh, burrows down into it just a little bit more. And that is the idea of uh, coming to love those who leave the church. Um, in the past, I think sometimes our, our efforts have been focused so much on when, when loved ones leave, we want to figure out how to somehow drag them back and figure out this, the, how exactly we're going to do that. And I want to change that just a little bit uh, in, a, in a very substantial way. So as we start today, I want to, I want to begin with... Uh, one of the snags that we have sometimes is the labels that we use with somebody who has been in the church and now they're gone. Oh, you know, in the past, they were always kind of called Jack Mormons, you know, those that had been active and now they're not. And um, Sometimes they've been labeled anti-Mormons, especially those that leave a little bit more angry and they tend to be more critical and attacking of the church. Uh, or they've been called backsliders. Uh, some of these are old terms. It gets a little more harsh though when we start talking about people in terms of being apostates uh, and they're going back on their, their covenants. Uh, pretty harsh labels uh, if you think about it. Sometimes, and we'll talk about why we do this, there are the, some of those that have left, we're just going to label them as lazy. Uh, they don't want to try hard enough or they want to find a way to break the commandments and have fun and so they're just lazy. Um, over the last few years we've labeled some of that as going through a faith crisis and and that sense of a crisis means that they're they're trying to come to grips with what they did believe and now balance it with what they're now believing and that's a pretty hard thing. I also think it's harsh though when sometimes they're just branded as less valiant or maybe they're just prideful or sinful. And because of that, if, if, you, if our goal at any point is to have a welcoming place for people who've been in the church, they then leave, and then if there's any consideration on their part to ever want to come back at all, if we're calling them apostates or lazy or backsliders, it's not a very comfortable place for them to come back to. Now, as we look at this, um, in a class uh, uh, last year, we actually talked about and utilized uh, stages of belief uh, from a former evangelical preacher by the name of Brian McLaren. And, and Brian, in, in talking about doubts, has done a beautiful job in describing stages which kind of build on each other as somebody goes through their faith and sometimes that faith leading them outside of the church 
uh, where they were. So I want to go back and describe again for maybe some of those of you who didn't uh, see it, um, th those stages of belief. First of all, when we are young, oftentimes we're in what McLaren calls a state of simplicity. That state of simplicity is we're kind of inside the fortress walls. There is us and thems. And there's either the people inside or those outside. And we're not really interested in those outsiders because we're busy with the insiders. And it's just we're recognized. We know what goes on inside here. It's very, very simple. Are you us or them? You with us or against us? You know? Are you cheering for BYU or Utah? You know, then there's nothing in between. Okay? Uh, so we have that inside the fortress idea. And oftentimes this simplicity stage is sometimes our earliest belief. For, for uh, children, primary children, they're, they're almost always going to be in simplicity. There's rights and there's wrongs. There's goods, there's bads. There's us, there's them. Um, and so it's a very uh, dualistic way of, of thinking. And this, in this dualistic thinking, us or them, there is little knowledge or even concern about the thems. I do, I'm not real. There's, there's the the God, people live in the gospel and the world, and we don't care about the world. That's them, um, and so it's very very black and white. And it gets and it's not just a difference between us and them. It's the, those that are right and those that are wrong. Think about so much of what's happening in social media these days whether it's elections or vaccines or whatever, it's all based on the us and the them, the goods and the bads, the rights and the wrongs. And so we get this polarized thing, and so we're inside the fortress or we're outside. And for a lot of people, in their faith stages, they're very much in simplicity. You're in the church or you're out. And so it's a very simple, uncluttered faith, very straightforward. And, and a number of people will stay in simplicity the entirety of their life. I like this one from Calvin. Dad, what causes wind? And Dad says, it's trees sneezing. You know, really? No, but the truth is more com complicated. And he, he's out walking with Hobbes and he says, hey, the trees are really sneezing today. <laughs> you know, I don't want the more complicated stuff. Oh, I, I got the answer. Is trees sneezing? End of, end of discussion. Okay, well, that's that's simplicity, and and kids have it, and a lot of adults who just want an uncomplicated faith are there as well. You follow the prophets, or the or you don't. End of sentence. For a lot of people, though, they grow from simplicity into something that is more about complexity. I'm going to understand what's inside my fortress. But now I need, with, with zeal, I need to defend, be able to defend the fortress against the thems. And so I'm going to defend, and I, so I need to know enough about other people, about what they believe, so that I can defend, and with actually with a goal towards saying, if I can defend it, I can actually go out of the fortress, I can go grab you, and I can bring you back in. A lot of our, you know... It, when we're serving missions, that is a very common way to go from, I, was, I grow up inside the fortress, and then I'm going to serve a mission, so now I go outside the fortress, and i got to defend the church with an idea of bringing people 
into the fortress. So you've got to be persuasive about how you're going to to do that. Um, I remember as a missionary teaching a, a sister who was a Methodist, and we went to visit her one night, and she had her Methodist minister there. And we started to have a discussion, and first it was cordial. And I don't remember whether it was him or us we, who reached for our Bible first. It's like the fastest on the draw. And pretty soon we were slinging scriptures back and forth, and the battle was raging. That's complexity. Now, inside complexity, we have to defend the fortress. There is a zeal, and we have to attack falsehoods. And because of that, we have to engage with the thems, and, and we'll do it with zeal, with that idea of capture and convert. What happens a lot of times, though, in this complexity stage, think about if you take a polar, polarizing comment on Facebook, for instance, and I don't know, and I don't care whether it's a political point or whether it's any other point, throw that out there and watch how fast somebody is to jump in and quickly defend the other side. Well, you're just wrong, or you don't understand, or I have a testimony of, or, you know, right, you would think that, you know. And, and what happens in this complexity stage, you'll see a lot of gatekeepers. And the, and the job of the gatekeeper is to immediately snuff out any falsehoods that might be out there. I have to defend the church, defend the fortress against falsehoods. And I'm going to do it in a very slinging, attacking sort of way. And I'm looking very carefully for anybody who's going to think differently. So uh, there are people that have been, have been hurt by the church in their eyes and they wake up almost every morning on social media looking to pounce on anybody who might have a pro-church viewpoint and they've got to quickly jump in and point out from their gatekeeper standpoint on their fortress why it is that that's wrong. Now, what happens though when somebody goes from simplicity to complexity and then somewhere along the line something about the fortress they've been defending turns out to be wrong or turns out in their eyes to be wrong. Um, and what happens when that happens, what, what occurs there is if that fortress then and the foundations appear to have been wrong and now they've been deceived or they've been betrayed, then oftentimes people will then go into what McLaren calls perplexity. The, the walls fall and now there's no fortress and now you're left to kind of drift where you had a surety when you were younger and then a zeal as you were a little bit older, now you're lost. This is why so many people that are simplicity in the church, I know Jesus is Jesus, then it's zeal, I'm going to attack your view of Jesus. Then they get to perplexity and they say, I don't even know if Jesus exists because now everything has been cast open to interpretation. In perplexity, the fortress collapses and there's confusion and there's pain. It's a very lo it's a big time loss of the structure and everything that I, I believed. There is a sense of loss and betrayal 
if there's a belief that part of what I built my fortress on was a lie. Other people were telling me what it was supposed to be and it turned out not to be true. Well, now it's it's loss and betrayal, and now I'm a spe- and so I'm going to be really suspicious of any fortress. So often, when people leave organized religion, they leave to become agnostic. I may be spiritual, but you won't catch me inside any church belonging to anyone because I've deconstructed the entire process, and that that's a dissonance of what it is that they did believe with what they're now believing, but they're not even sure of that. So now you question everything. One of the things that I found is that those that have left a, a very rigid church that they, that they felt was very, very structured, then it collapses during their perplexity stage. They still miss that sense of having a community of other people to to work with. We have a it's one of those things that I think well, for whatever struggles the church may have, our sense of community has always been one of those drawing things I think to people and one of the blessings to other people's lives. When people leave the church, they leave a community and now they're a bit lost, but they have a sense of still wanting to serve and help others, but they become very suspicious of any other fortress. And those that are leaving churches then sometimes try to form communities of people who all, have all gone through perplexity, but they still don't, stre- they don't still trust structure. They don't trust anybody to have anybody authority. And then it's hard to even organize to go do something to help one another. Um, that's why it's such a period of loss. What McLaren ultimately describes is that this sense of perplexity is sometimes driven by our own uh, rhetoric that we use inside our church. Think about some of the things that we've heard growing up. For instance, uh, Brother Richard Bushman, who wrote uh, Rough Stone Rolling, talks about the fact that our theology has been our history. So if we wanted, if somebody wanted to know about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we start rolling out the gold plates, the first vision. We're going to tell history about who we are, which worked well until, let's see. So if everything's going to rest on the first vision, think about what sometimes has been said, even from the pulpit, about the fact that it all rests on the first vision. And if the first vision didn't happen, it all falls apart. Then for a lot of people that, that didn't weren't reading history, they didn't realize that there were different versions of the first vision. Joseph had told different aspects of it in different places. And suddenly that sense of history is being messed with because we were resting it on fallible people who sometimes made mistakes and on prophets who were doing the best that they could but sometimes in the errors in the way that they approach things and suddenly our theology was a little bit shaky because our history was made up of fallible people in another century. So we kind of set ourselves up. For so many people though, when they begin finally to work through perplexity, one of the places that they land is what we could call harmony. There has to be a way, ultimately, when the walls fall, 
for you to sit back in the midst of perplexity and say, what is it that I center my belief in? What do I really believe? And in, pro- in the process of that, do we start to say, there are, I can, I can settle it on Jesus and the things that he taught. What did he teach? Separate from whatever else might be out there, what did he teach? And can I go with that? So when, when people get to a stage of harmony, they start to reconstruct a faith that they can be comfortable and live within. Harmony also means harmonizing what I now believe and possibly connecting with other people. So out of this storm and the tornado of uh, perplexity now comes harmony and you can now begin to build relationships built on love and respect uh, and things that feel very true. And in cases like this, like when we get mixed faith marriages, we agree to disagree. We, we have a, a, a center of harmony, even though there's some specific aspects about our particular faith or belief that isn't, that, that I may not believe, and I know you do, but we have so many other things that we can reach for. So it's actually based on mutual respect. I may disagree, but I respect that you hold that opinion. And when we're actually in harmony, now we begin to find, uh, as a BYU fan, that I could have things to learn from a Utah fan, you know. And and as as an LDS member, there may be beautiful truths that I can learn from Catholics or Buddhists or somebody else that is bringing truth. Uh, to the table. It's not an us versus them. We're going to harmonize and find those areas of agreement of which there are many in those other uh, uh, churches and, and faith traditions. Um, in one of our other classes we talked about Patrick Mason's view of garden plots. That the whole world is like a garden. And each individual belief system has their own little garden plot of what they're growing and what they do best. Now, if we look in our little particular LDS garden plot, hey, we do families and we do family history and temples better than anybody else. But we're not so good on meditation and those things. The the Buddhist plot over here, those guys have got that kind of contemplative... Uh, harmonizing, centering, kind of feeling well. And we have a lot that we can learn from them. And for somebody else, they have beautiful truths about this, and we can learn from them and what they produce in their little garden plot. And the idea is that we trade those that information coming from our own individual plots. Now, to get to that place of harmony, though, this is where I think the challenge lies. And so if we take somebody else's, these stages, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony, which by the way, sometimes aren't just necessary stages where we cast the one away once we move to the next one. They are also, as McLaren has suggested, they're all, almost more like tree trunks and the rings of a tree where you've got a center one, that simplicity, and actually complexity built on that 
simplicity. It added more variety, more knowledge to it. And then, some, and then if you add perplexity to that ring, then in perplexity maybe we have questions and doubts about things and we reconstruct what that looks like. But we're drawing on our simplicity uh, foundation. Then ultimately harmony is going to take all those things that we've learned in here and add to that as well. So don't just think of it in terms of one after another. So here's where people are. And when we're going to deal with our loved ones that maybe then struggle and then, and then take a path that perhaps leaves them out of worshiping with us for some time or maybe forever. The question that I think we need to ask ourselves, and one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of do this class a little bit more in depth, is to ask this question ex specifically. What stage do you see you in? We can talk about others that we know and the stages that they're in. But before we go on, I want you to take a second and say, where do I see me? Am I very much in simplicity? Am I much in complexity? Am I silently going through, through perplexity and questions and doubts and I'm really not telling anybody that I'm really, really struggling? Or have I landed on harmony? And hopefully this class will kind of get more of us to that harmony stage. But think about for a second where you are. Now, that becomes critically important in dealing with people that are going through their own faith crisis set of emotions because how you will respond to others in their crisis will depend in large part about where you are on these stages. So what will that look like? Let's, let's take each one of these for just a second. So while we have others who are, have gone through in their own life, they've gone through simplicity, they've gone through complexity, and now the walls fell. And they're struggling in perplexity and deconstruction. And everything is just kind of on the ground. And they don't know. And perhaps they haven't yet got to a, a place of harmonizing all the things that they believe. Now, how we will approach that perplexity depends a lot on where we are. So let's look at that. For instance, if you, if you answered this question of where am I by saying, I'm pretty much in simplicity. It's all about right or wrong. Uh, I don't know about other churches. I just know we're right. I have no, no question about it. And I'm comfortable inside the fortress. Really not that interested in finding out about other people out there. I just like my world as it exists. It's, I'm happy there. I'm comfortable there. When you find out about somebody who is in perplexity, they've, they've, they're struggling, they've kind of, I'm not sure that I believe that there was a Book of Mormon. I'm not sure that there was, you know, whatever. Okay? If you're in simplicity, here's your struggle. You're going to have a difficult understanding those that you love in their own perplexity. In this difficulty in trying to understand them, you may be too quick to assign a fast reason for why it is they left the church. Well, they just wanted to sin. Well, they went off to college, they got a little knowledge, and now they're learned, and of course they left the church. They just, because learned, uh, now, that, now that they're learned, they think they're wise, and then they leave. And, that, and it's a very quick, quick answer. And sometimes you'll hear these uh, very uh, 
answers coming from simplicity in a gospel doctrine class when somebody says, well, uh, when, and they left the church. Well, sure they did. They just wanted to sin. They're just that way. Okay. End of sentence. Move on. We've now quickly labeled it and, and no other discussion really needs to be had. Okay. Now, we may then tend to withdraw and avoid where they are simply because we don't understand, we don't get it, we're almost afraid that we're going to get their perplexity cooties on us. And so, I'm going to say, well, I just, you know, keep me away, kids don't go near them, let's kind of protect ourselves because something bad has happened there and we got to make sure that we stay away from it. When we're in simplicity, perplexity is a hard time is, is we have a hard time understanding that. Okay? Now, what happens though if you're in complexity? Full of vim and vigor and zeal and you know, defend defend the castle to the last man. Okay? And now you find somebody is in perplexity. They're struggling. Well, if you're in perplexity, here's what's likely to happen. You're going to be quick to defend the church. Uh, and, and sometimes you'll find that gatekeeper zeal rising up. You know, someone in gospel doctrine says, well, I'm just not sure that there was a Nephi. Maybe this, the Book of Mormon is a metaphor. You know, and the gatekeeper, uh, complexity-driven guy in gospel doctrine will stand up and say, I have a firm testimony that there was a Nephi and beyond a shadow of a doubt because it's your job with testimony to bear down and, and, and settle the question and do it in a forceful, strong manner uh, because doubt is basically of the devil and you've got to make sure that you eradicate it as quickly as you can. Okay? You, if somebody has left, you might send articles and talks. Uh, send, maybe maybe a meme, you know. Maybe a conference talk will be the thing that that ropes them in, that finally brings them back to the church and changes the whole thing uh, on its head. Okay, so because remember, part of the goal in complexity is capture and bring them back, bring them back in, and so you're you're going to see somebody in perplexity that has left the church and you have a complete focus on making sure that they return. So everything you're going to do is based on uh, the, the anxiety that they're just not back yet. I need to do more. Now, also then we may end up having to then argue and get angry with somebody because now we're going to end up going back and forth between what they believe and with what we believe. So again, complexity can stir up problems and sometimes the things that I fear is that sometimes when people respond to somebody's doubts and they do it out of a place of perplexity or out of complexity and zeal, it actually drives away the very people that we want to have connections and relationships with regardless of whether they ever come back to the church because some of those arguments and some of that feels like judging and attacking may form forever barriers that make it hard to come back. Now, 
The next one is interesting. Oft times those that are in perplexity have been in perplexity for a while or different stages of it. But you're not always sure you can say something. So those quiet doubts are swirling around in there. And, and suddenly you're not sure you read something that was unsettling and you don't know. And you encounter somebody who is in perplexity. And they, you saw where their doubts took them. One of a couple of things can happen. One, it can very much uh, compound your own doubts and confusion and, and stir that up and make you even more anxious. Oh my gosh, they had the same questions and I did too. Some, interestingly enough, this is a scary enough experience, it sends them hurtling back to simplicity. I started to get out there, it kind of freaked me out, so I'm going to hurry back <clears throat> behind the fortress walls and stay safe there. And because of that, I actually am avoiding people with doubts. And I can't really be supportive and loving towards them because you freak me out, man. I just don't want to be anywhere near that. So you end up withdrawing from the very people that may need your love and support as, as they cast about and try and decide who they really are as well. Now finally, I think if we are in a state of harmony, I think that puts us in, an, in a much better place. If we're in harmony and somebody is struggling it with their faith, now we're in a position not to attack, not to avoid, not to try and uh, uh, argue and then capture. We're in a place to just simply listen and love people that are now lost. They're standing at the shattered, looking at the shattered uh, walls of the fortress and are just concerned about what comes next. Everything's been pulled out from underneath them. And what they need from us at that point is not an argument. They need to be loved and they need to be listened to because they are still the great people that we knew that they were originally. We need to sympathize with their pain. See, it's not, and to do that, it won't be required of you to be able to sympathize that you then go out and read all the things that stirred them up. What they really need to know is that you're hearing that they are reading disturbing things or hearing painful things and that you're going to be there and support them in whatever decision that they make going forward. Now, that's tough. That's tough when you're, you're, you're in your heart you may love the gospel and love the temple and you watch people that make decisions to put themselves outside of that. But know that they're really good people uh, who are really hurting and really lost. So we need some basic understandings as we get going. Some of the misunderstandings that can cause and hurdle them through into perplexity Many members struggle with perplexity caused by things like the nature of God. You know, I, I believed in God and I believe in a God who should do X, Y, and Z, and he didn't. He didn't save 
this family. He allowed suffering to occur in the world. And a lot of times people are struggling with that nature of God. Another one is an expectations of prophets. Sometimes our own rhetoric has built prophets up beyond mortal standards. And then we are disappointed and dismayed when a prophet makes a mistake. And, and, or we say we can't allow it, we don't worry about them making a mistake because that's a slippery slope to never believing prophets at all. But because of that, we then end up kind of in an unofficial worship of prophets where, where we're really trying to expect uh, way too much from them. The expectations are unreasonable. Sometimes it's a matter of the ongoing revelation. Things changed. Uh, I heard somebody say, you know, we're talking about the living church, as, as it says in Doctrine and Covenants 1. Well, last time I checked, if we're living beings, we're different people now than we were as teenagers. <laughs> and our teenager self wasn't, was, had more going for them than our childhood did. Well, we allow people to grow through uh, hard knocks of teenagehood and early adulthood into maturity. And a living church needs to also have that same kind of grace. That there may have been moments and times in our teenage church that we kind of look back and wince a little bit about some of the ways that they went about things. I think we'd be shocked to sit in in a sacrament meeting in 1850 and hear what we're hearing. But in an ongoing restoration, things change not because we grow and more light and knowledge is received. Sometimes cult cultural myths taught as doctrine and we have a hard time getting outside the culture. My experience with so many people that have struggled with the church is that when you start stripping it down you find a lot of the struggle is with the culture and things that they were taught uh, growing up that turned out were really more uh, a myth than it was gospel doctrine and you won't find it in the New Testament or non-doctrinal teachings about the eternities. Uh, I have a son who's gay who's never now going to make it to the celestial kingdom and will have a sad heaven because my son won't make it. Um, those kind of non-doctrinal teachings that really cause a great deal of pain in people. So again, our goal with people that struggle is to love someone as they work their way through perplexity. Remember, they're expecting to be judged and are awfully, awfully, often overly sensitive to anything that may look like judging. So we have to be overly careful about how we do that so that they feel an outpouring of our love, not an outpouring of criticism. So, what is the goal with somebody struggling like this? Well, DNC 88. Our goal is we want to be, the goal of the plan of salvation is that we want to be sanctified from all unrighteousness, that we may be prepared for the celestial glory. And after we've been filled with the measure of our creations, we're going to be crowned with glory even in the presence of our Father. So the question is who makes it to the celestial kingdom? Especially when we're talking about trying to push back on, on uh, eternal myths. Well, the answer, who makes it to the celestial kingdom? It's going to be those who are like 
our heavenly parents and can abide the glory of the celestial kingdom. It's those that become like them. Now, the question isn't um, as we get caught up in complexity, do you believe this and this and this and this? The question I think is, where are we and where are they in this path towards becoming Christ-like? Where are we along the path? Think about that. Is it possible, for instance, that someone on the stature of, of a, a Mother Teresa or a lowly monk in a, in a Benedictine uh, monastery somewhere, as they strive hard to become Christ-like, is it possible that they might be farther down the path than somebody who's going through the temple a lot but struggles in other areas of their life? What we're trying to look for is, as people are walking along, is not so much uh, what they may believe right now as much as who are they? What are they becoming? There's a reason that President Oaks has said over and over and over, the celestial kingdom is not about what we do. It's about who we've become through the atonement of Christ. And I believe in this world there are many, many atheists, for instance, on whom the atonement of Christ is working and they are being transformed into good people who don't even know the power that, that, that's being wrought on them. They are changing. They're transforming. And all you have to do is look at their life, look at the way that they love, look at the way that they serve other people, and you can see somebody moving ahead. Ultimately, uh, when we get to this point, what we're doing in our little plot of the, of the gospel kingdom in terms of temples and temple work, those opportunities will be presented to them somewhere in this life or the next. But they may, because of their transformation, that may be a fast assimilation of the ordinances being done for them. So our path to become God uh, really extends beyond the veil. And when we start taking a look at those that have struggled in perplexity, we're going to love them and harmonize with them and see the long haul, not, not be uh, panicking if they don't accept, come back into the gospel in the next year and a half. Okay? So, it's essential then. As uh, uh, Professor Eric Huntsman frequently says, if you're not quite sure about something, the answer is always Jesus. <laughs> the essence of Jesus' teachings is, be kind to our neighbor, be loving, serve one another, be non-judgmental, forgive quickly and easily, and any relationship, regardless of belief, must have these elements to survive. It is the, it is the essence of harmony. Now, ultimately, you and I believe that the greatest source of happiness and peace comes by living the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the commandments and directives that pass through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that is the greatest source of joy. But when people are struggling outside of that, can we also recognize that as we harmonize with them that they also bring stuff to the table? That they are also good people making their path to becoming more godlike, even if they don't know it? And that our loving them from our place and understanding of the gospel 
it allows us to love them more deeply and harmonize more closely with them for them to be ultimately who they can be. So, um, before we get done then, um, what do I do with a family member who has left the church who is, or is overly angry or critical or sarcastic to family members who believe? We love them and we work and we begin to work with them not in terms of trying to convince one against another but we work with them to find areas in which we can harmonize because ultimately conflict is inevitable but contention and argument is a choice and our question for them as it is for all people is how can we collaborate on good things and where are those areas that we can agree on my brothers and sisters, I believe that as we're going to watch people in our midst struggle at so many different levels, if we approach all of this with a desire to love and harmonize and sympathize with somebody's journey and not come out, come out of it with a contentiousness, I think we can find ways and places to harmonize. And we can celebrate people that may not be worshiping in our midst at the moment, but are growing and developing in kindness and forgiveness. And bring to them what we're also learning within the gospel. And recognize again that the gospel plan is on both sides of the veil. And, and, and I believe ultimately, as I've said before, take any of these good people put them in the spirit world and give Jesus a million years to work with them how will they turn out my money's on the Savior and on his ability to love and transform and change and ultimately bring them home I bear you my testimony that the Lord loves us and wants to love them and I leave that with you in Jesus name Amen